Hello and welcome to episode 323 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today is a story from the Whitechapel region of London, the infamous haunt of Jack the Ripper in the 1800s. And at the end of today's story, maybe we can ask. And maybe at the end of the story, we can ask, are things so different today? As always, a huge thank you to all my supporters at Patreon, but especially the new members of this community. That's Lee Jackson, Alice G and Claire Beaumont, and also Catherine Fearfield for raising her level of support. Thank you all so much. It's really appreciated. A reminder that if you haven't listened yet, the Picture the Scene podcast is now out every Tuesday. Andrew and Rachel this week are covering, at the time, the UK's most wanted woman, who managed to successfully be on the run for nine years, evading the police, and she once evaded them by wearing a wig and walking straight past them, as you do. Picture the scene, it's a great show. Please do take a listen. Before we begin, let's set the context for today's story with our guest the month and year game. Top of the UK charts was Kanye West with Stronger. Beautiful Girls from Sean Kingston was number one in the US. And in Australia, the top album was The Duchess from Fergie. Not that one, or that one. In the news this month, Eclipse, the third book in Stephanie Mayer's Twilight Saga, was published. Hmm, not my thing. Were you a fan? The hashtag was invented. Ah, fantastic. And first used in a tweet by US product designer Chris Messina. Messina. Chris, anyway. Richard Jewell died. If you remember, he was the American security guard who was such a central figure in the Olympic Park bombing at the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. If you recall, he found a backpack containing bombs and the evacuation that then took place undoubtedly saved lives and serious injury. Richard Jewell was just 44 when he died. And in UK True Crime News, we were all shocked by the terrible murder of 11-year-old Reese Jones in Liverpool. He was murdered whilst walking home from football practice. Sean Mercer, 16, a member of local criminal gang the Croxteth Crew, was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life imprisonment serving a minimum of 22 years. Such a shocking story. So did you guess the month and year? It was August 2007. I wonder what you were up to then. I was going through a bit of a, uh, I was going through a bit of a strange time. Whitechapel in East London was the central point for the, well, at least five murders that are for sure committed by Jack the Ripper. This case splits true crime fans like us more than any other, I think. Some devour all they can about the story, and there are others like me who have zero interest in it whatsoever. The area around Whitechapel is now in the main very different to how it was back in 1888 when the area was filled with slums and people living hand-to-mouth, just doing what they could to survive. But sadly, one thing that hasn't changed even today in 2023 is that there are people selling sex on the streets of Whitechapel. Will it ever change? You would imagine so, you would hope so eventually. But I mention it as it is so key to the story this week. 
But our story starts today in Whitechapel Market, just a stone's throw from the infamous Blind Beggar pub, where on 9th of March 1966, Ronnie Cray shot and murdered George Cornell, an associate of rival gang the Richardsons, as he was sitting at the bar. It's a vibrant place, the market, and you can buy most things there. And back in 2007, DVDs were still quite a thing, as some of us well remember. 29-year-old Xiao Mi Gu made her living selling DVDs at Whitechapel Market. Okay, so it was unlikely to ever make her millions of pounds, but Xiao, a mum of two boys, and her husband, made enough money to keep them alive and to send back money to their families in Fujian province in southern China, including their two children, who they left to stay with relatives. It was hard for them to get a more mainstream job as they both entered the UK illegally. The DVDs they sold were counterfeit, and it was only a matter of time before they were caught and up in front of the courts, and in 2007, Xiao's husband was sent to prison for this crime. I know, I wonder if you agree with me. It is harsh to say the least, right? But, as I say so many times, we do seem obsessed in this country with sending people who aren't dangerous to prison. Anyway, when he was released, there was no sign of his wife. He checked and she'd not returned to China or been sent to prison herself, so just where was she? At Whitechapel Market, he asked around, and those people that knew her said she'd not been seen since August 2007. Terrified that something terrible had happened to his wife, he went to the police to report Xiao missing. Not long afterwards, on the 18th of September 2007, another young woman, 24-year-old Bonnie Barrett, disappeared. The mother of a six-year-old son, Bonnie was addicted to crack cocaine and had been selling sex on the streets of Whitechapel for a number of years before her disappearance. It was a desperate and dangerous lifestyle as she scratched a living to fund her drug habit. Already by this stage, due to the chaotic nature of her life, Bonnie's son was living safely with her mum Jackie in South London. Detectives felt that the two cases had to be connected. The two women were taken or disappeared within half a mile of each other in Whitechapel. It just seemed too much to be a coincidence and they desperately searched CCTV footage from the area for any sign of what had happened to these two women. There was positive footage of Xiao with a middle-aged man at Whitechapel tube station about the time she disappeared and conversations with sex workers around the Commercial Street area of Whitechapel revealed that Bonnie had been seen at about the same time just before she disappeared with what seemed to be the same man, someone who was known to the fellow sex workers as a man who regularly bought sex in Whitechapel. So detectives had a suspect. They now just had to figure out just who this man was. They believed that he was a local person, and someone in the area must recognise him, and so they flooded the local media and shops with wanted pictures displaying his face. And it wasn't long until their break came 
but in the most old-fashioned way possible. Old-fashioned, fantastic police work. It was October 2007 when police with a wanted picture were in the Londis General Store in Rotherhive, which is just across the Thames from Whitechapel. When they asked the shop assistant if he'd seen the man in the picture, he happily replied that he had. Then he turned around and he pointed to a man browsing the shelves, saying, and there he is, he's over there. And the man he was pointing at was indeed the man they'd been looking for. He was 47-year-old Derek Brown, very ordinary-looking sort of guy. As police had launched a massive hunt for the two women, Brown had continued with his life as normal, delivering newspapers and magazines to retailers overnight. He told police that he'd known both of the missing women, having bought DVDs from Shaw in the past, and he said he had taken both Shaw and Bonnie back to his flat in Rotherhive for paid sex that summer. Detectives immediately went to search his one-bedroom flat. It seemed spotless at first when you first looked at it, but ultraviolet lights revealed that Brown had attempted to wash bloodstains that were smeared across the walls of his bedroom, corridor and kitchen. Traces of blood from both of the missing women were found splattered throughout his flat, even though he had tried to steam clean every surface. There were 65 blood spots identified. Neighbours, when they were asked if they'd heard anything suspicious, said they'd heard women's screams coming from the flat around the time and he had ripped up his carpets and been seen dumping them in communal bins. There was no sign of the bodies of the two women, but police discovered that in the days after the killings he made three trips to the B&Q on the Old Kent Road where he spent a total of £155 on cleaning products, a bow saw, rubble sacks, a waterproof sheet, and roll after roll of industrial strength cling film. The theory is that Brown used the saw to chop up Bonnie and Shao's bodies, and then he dumped them in the Thames. He then used the cleaning products to attempt to clean away much of the evidence. And despite over 800 hours searching the river by police and and divers, no trace of the women's remains has ever been found. Brown said that he was planning to leave his flat in Rotherhive and move to Kent and claimed he was redecorating, which is why all the cleaning had been taken place. That was the reason. He wasn't trying to cover up murders. Detectives spoke to some of his friends or acquaintances rather and they uncovered that he was an avid reader about killers and mass murder. Sounds familiar. And his library card showed that one of his favourite writers was Jack the Ripper author, Nigel Cawthorn. Three weeks before he committed the first murder, he'd borrowed a copy from the library of Cawthorn's Killers, the most barbaric murders of our time. He also told a close friend, you will hear of me and boasted that he wanted to become famous, I quote, in an unpleasant way. Scary stuff, huh? Brown was originally from Preston in the northwest of England, and he was a father of three, but though he showed no interest in and saw very little of his children. Those who knew him said he was something of a loner, he was a heavy drinker, and he often sought the company of sex workers. 
He was known to have a large sexual appetite and lusted after slim, small-breasted women, according to the sex workers he bought sex from regularly. He was also known to police colleagues in the Preston area. With a series of convictions for burglary in the north of England between 1976 and 1986, and in July 1989 at Preston Crown Court, he was jailed for seven years after pleading guilty to rape. It was late 2007 when the police knocked on the door of Bonnie's mum, Jackie, in Woolworth, South London. Jackie later explained what happened. When they introduced themselves as homicide, I knew what that meant. They had found Bonnie's DNA and traces of blood in Brown's flat, along with that of a Chinese DVD seller, Xiaomei Gao. My heart just sank. They told me she was a prostitute and I was shocked. I knew she'd been struggling with drugs, but I didn't know she was on the game. It was devastating. Brown was charged with two counts of murder, to which he pleaded not guilty at his trial. The prosecution in the Old Bailey trial said that Brown targeted the women, as both lived on the edge of society, and both were soft targets for the killer. He thought that neither woman would be missed. Brown said that he'd met Xiao, who sold fake DVDs, three times before she disappeared. He said the last time he saw her, there were two Chinese men with her, who were asking where her husband was. He said that he saw one of them hit her with a metal rod, and this left her with a bloody nose. And that same man saw him watching the conversation, and he approached him, and made it very clear that he shouldn't get too involved or he would come to harm as well. They look like the type of people who get up to no good, said Brown. The prosecution said that the very last time Shao was seen in Whitechapel Market was immediately followed by CCTV pictures showing her with Brown by Whitechapel Tube Station. They believed that he enticed her to his flat in Rotherhive by saying he wanted to have a better look at the DVDs that she could sell him, but she was never seen again. Brown also confirmed that he'd paid Bonnie Barrett to come back to his flat for sex and it wasn't the first time he'd done so, but he denied killing her. Although he was cross-examined by the prosecution on the Monday of his trial, he refused to give any more evidence as the trial resumed on the Tuesday. When the judge asked Brown, you know that if you refuse to answer further questions, the jury may draw such conclusions as they feel appropriate. You understand that fully? Brown replied, yes. You still refuse then to return to the witness box, asked the judge? Again, Brown just replied, yes. The jury did not need long to deliberate on their verdict, and within under three hours, they were back to say that they'd found Brown guilty on both counts of murder. It was Brown's 48th birthday as he was handed two 30-year sentences to run concurrently. On being found guilty, Brown reacted by giving an exaggerated yawn. Once again, another example of what we hear way too much on this podcast. In court, a total lack of respect for the victim's families. I find it really, really hard to deal with. The judge told him, You are a very, very dangerous man. 
You've been convicted on overwhelming evidence of the murders of two women within three weeks of each other. You have shown not a flicker of remorse. You took a devious and cowardly course at this trial, taking virtually a whole day to give your lying account to the jury, then refusing to be cross-examined. I've no doubt that you took that course because you had no answer to the questions you would be asked. The jury demonstrated how your attempt to hoodwink them had failed when they took less than three hours to convict you after a four-week trial. You murdered two vulnerable women plying their trade on the streets precisely because of their availability and their lack of protection. What you did to each of these women before you killed them can only be speculated on. What we do know is that you dispose of their bodies with frightening efficiency so that not a trace of evil woman has been found. While there is no direct evidence of how you dispose of the bodies, there is clear circumstantial evidence that you dismembered and then disposed of them using equipment and materials you bought for the purpose. And with that, Brown was led back to the cells. Shell's husband spoke after the trial to say, The body still has not been found. It's really very difficult for me to accept the truth. It seems there will be no closure. They, he meant his sons, don't know about this. I've tried to tell them, but I really don't have the courage to tell them the truth. He said that his wife was a very beautiful, traditional and thoughtful person. and What she really wanted was for her family to have a happy and bright future. Following the verdict, the chief police person said, Derek Brown targeted these people because of their vulnerability. He thought no one would care. Xiao and Bonnie did have unconventional lifestyles, but they were vibrant young women with friends, families and children. His callous murder of them and the concealment of their bodies has devastated their families in a way that is hard to comprehend. Brown's motives remain unclear. He is a convicted rapist, which may indicate his intentions. But for a man of his age to kill two women in a few weeks may indicate he sought notoriety. It is my view he would have killed again if not stopped. He has shown no hint of remorse and he deserves a lengthy sentence. As I record this in January 2023, Brown is yet to admit his guilt or admit what he did with the bodies. Like so many other similar stories, this is so infuriating and desperately upsetting for the families. Ten years after the trial talking to the Southwark Times newspaper, Bonnie's mum Jackie said, It's a cold case and the police will reopen it every two years. And every two years they will go to the prison to see if he will talk any more about what he did with the bodies. But the police have told me, every time, he just tells them to fuck off. I remember him in the court. It looked like any old day in the office to him. He showed absolutely no remorse. There are so many photographs of Bonnie at Jackie's house. She explained what happens when the anniversary of Bonnie's death arrives each year, saying how she has to shut herself away and not talk to anybody. I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed at the time, but I can talk about it now and everyone tells me I'm so strong. But when her anniversary comes, I have to be left alone. 
No one even calls me because they know I don't want to talk to anyone and I would cry a little bit. She also explained how hard the murder trial was for her other daughter, Kelly, Bonnie's younger sister, who was pregnant, heavily pregnant at the time. Kelly went into labour on the day that Brown was sentenced and the following day she gave birth to the first of her three children. It was a little girl and she called her Bonnie. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Look, I don't want to push the Whitechapel, Jack the Ripper connections too much, but it has to be said that like Jack the Ripper, Derek Brown picked on young women victims who scratched a living on the edge of society. And what is particularly chilling to me is that the killings appear to be premeditated to bring Brown fame. Now, how must that be for the families of the poor victims that there was no reason for their hopes and dreams being eliminated, leaving three children without a mum, all because a loser like Brown wanted some form of notoriety in his otherwise insignificant little life? Police believe that Brown could have been about to start a killing spree when he was arrested, as he'd expressed his desire to be famous, according to a friend. The lead detective said, if he kept killing prostitutes from the Whitechapel area, then that link with Jack the Ripper would be made. If this was a spree, it seems likely that we stopped him at number two. In this podcast today, we've heard of his shocking lack of remorse and his total lack of respect for the families of the victims. I mean, yawning in court, not giving evidence, and of course not revealing what he did with the bodies. As you listen to this now, as Brown languishes in his cell, I wonder if he ever reflects on the lives he took and the effect it's had on so many people. As we've discussed so many times, the ripple effects of murder last for generations. But based on his responses by telling the police to go away, when they speak to him in jail? I guess not. Just what has happened to a man like Brown to make him so cold, unfeeling and uncaring? The other question I imagine you are asking is, are there more victims? So he was sent to prison for seven years for rape in 1989. So assuming he was out in the early 90s, there are no more convictions in his name until these two murders in 2007. There is online loads of talk of police forces looking at him for unsolved murders, but as far as I can tell, no more convictions or even strong suspicions. So had he not killed before? Was this the first time that Brown had killed? It seems unlikely, doesn't it? Or did his choice of victim mean that he did kill? But due to the chaotic lifestyles of his victims, he just wasn't caught. I wonder. Thank you for taking the time to join me for this episode of the weekly UK True Crime podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please just head to the Facebook group. Just search UK True Crime. I think it's about 86, 87,000 of us there. We talk true crime. 24-7, 
It's many things. <laughs> it's really never, ever dull. It's never dull. It's never dull. Come and join us. Come and join us today. And if you wish to support the show, and why wouldn't you keep me producing this every week, please support me at Patreon. Just head to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash UK True Crime. There's bonus episodes, competitions, behind the scenes stuff. There's loads of bits and pieces. Come and join us there today. Okay, so that's it for another week. I'm finished until Tuesday. So until we speak again, please do take it easy. And despite despite all the others, oh goodness me, it's the others, isn't it? Despite the others. Stay classy. Cheerio for now.